you're taking your seat, you can grab your, your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers at the front right here, they're going to walk towards the back. You can just slip your hand up in the air and we'll make sure that a Bible gets to you. And if you don't own a Bible, just keep this copy, take it home with you. Trust that it will bless you and encourage you. And uh, we are continuing to march through the book of Genesis. And uh, we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 8. And uh, last week we looked at the first half of the flood narrative. We've broken it up into a, a couple chunks. And in Genesis, from chapter 6, verse 9, all the way through the end of chapter 9, it's one unit of thought. But there are different phases to the story. Moses actually divides this story into two perfectly symmetrical halves. And he's done so in a, in, in a brilliant kind of literary structure and form. The, 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 the end and the beginning of the story kind of bookend each other. And it kind of forms what the, the Hebrews called a chiasm. So the, the beginning and the end, incrementally the story builds and works towards a center and then it begins to move from that center back outwards forming this kind of a V shape where everything is intended to intersect in the middle and the way that the, the structure works in this way is to help us identify the hinge of the story and the focal point of the story. It's one of the ways, again, that, that in ancient literature, it's like they take out a highlighter for us and say, here's the point. Don't miss this thought. This is the big idea that you need to walk away with. And here what we see is that at the very center are these words in chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. The first half of the story deals with what we looked at last week and called decreation of the world. God's judgment against sin and his salvation of one family are highlighted. God leaves us in this story with a remnant, a righteous remnant, with which God is going to essentially start the human project all over again. You might call this, in the beginning, again. And while this account is unique, almost one of a kind, it does form for us a bit of a paradigm that as we have seen will reach its escalation and culmination in the final judgment before the second coming of Christ where God will decreate the earth again and recreate it in a final form that will last for all eternity. But again, in between these two bookends of the Bible, what we see is that God will often break down in order to build up. He's going to do this in key figures even in the book of Genesis. He's going to do this in the life of Abraham. He's going to do this in the life of Joseph. He's going to bring them to the pit, so to speak, and then he's going to rise them out of the ashes and build them into something beautiful. We're going to see it throughout the rest of the Bible in people like Moses and in people like Job. God will do it 
At times in the nation of Israel, he will break them down in order to build them up. He will do it most importantly at the cross of Jesus Christ where Christ is broken. His body is broken so that he may be raised from the grave and exalted to the right hand of the Father. He will take what is broken and make something so beautiful. Brokenness, what we see is that brokenness so often comes before beauty, shattering before strengthening. God must decreate in order to recreate. And if you are to enter into the new creation at the return of Jesus, here's one of the things you have to grapple with. You yourself must be made a new creation in Christ. You must be broken down. You must be humbled and and broken, brought low before God. You must, as, as Jesus says, you must die before you can live. And even after following Christ for the first time, after that moment of salvation, we will often experience this paradigm in formative ways in our Christian life. It's a pattern of renewal. Perhaps you find yourself in the midst of this pattern right now. Maybe you find yourself early on in this pattern. You feel like God is breaking you down, like life is hitting you in ways you had not expected it to hit you. And what you need to hear is that maybe God is... He's allowing the waves to crash against the side of your boat because he wants to break you down in order to build you up. It's the refiner's fire, and God is coming alongside and saying, out with the old, in with the new. Maybe you feel like the rain is is falling, the floodwaters are rising, and you can't see through the storm. Maybe you feel like you're not even sure if you're going to make it through the storm. What keeps you in these moments? What is it that gives you hope and stability? What is the anchor for your soul? And for that, we look now to Noah. The hinge, as I mentioned here, in this entire flood story, this true story, is that God remembers Noah. And God's remembering, it's helpful maybe to front load this, God's remembering is, is not simply a recollection of facts. It's not like God forgot about Noah. It's not that kind of remembering. You see, when God remembers, God always acts. When God, for example, remembered Abraham in Genesis chapter 19, 29, he saved Lot. When God remembered Rachel in Genesis 30, verse 22, she conceived and bore a child As one theologian states, God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object. The essence of God's remembering lies in his acting towards someone because of a previous commitment. It's covenant language. It's designating this covenant fidelity. God is acting in accordance with his earlier covenant to Noah, which is built on an even earlier covenant to the first Adam, the first man, Adam. And here's why this is so significant, Christian, because you have entered into a new and better covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ, your Lord and your Savior. If you are in Christ today, God has made a commitment to you. He has obligated himself to you by his own character and nature. And that means God, listen, God will always remember you. 
You will never be forgotten. You will never be left. You will never be forsaken. God remembers you. And that's so critical because sometimes we feel forgotten. We feel like God has forsaken us. We're wondering whether or not God is going to rescue us, whether or not we're going to make it through the circumstance, whether we're going to make it through this season of life, whether we're going to make it through this life at all. We wonder often, where are you, God? And I want to show you three important truths in this text. First, because God remembers he will renew security and strength through his storm. Picking up in verse 1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. God now acts to bring restoration and recreation to this world that he has deluged because of human sin and rebellion. And again, this this is the, the high watermark, pun intended, of this narrative. God remembers Noah in the midst of all the judgment, in the midst of, of all the havoc that's being wreaked on the earth because of the flood. God takes note of one man and his family and all of the animals that he has chosen to preserve in the ark. The text tells us that God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. I mentioned that this is a kind of recreation event and so we should expect some similarities here with the creation narrative. This is one of those touch points or similarities. The word for wind in Hebrew is the same word for spirit. And remember how the waters in the beginning of the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, they covered the earth and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters? That's the imagery here that is being imprinted on our minds. It's like the text is telling us the wind that's moving, it's the Spirit of God that's beginning to create a new earth. In other words, this renewal process is wrought only by God himself. Not only that, it comes about not through a storm, it comes about through his storm. He's in charge. He oversees. He has a purpose and a plan in what he's doing in and through this storm. The voyage ends and Noah and his family, they've made it through his storm. Now, I just, it's, it's helpful, I think, sometimes just to try to put ourselves in the shoes of the ancient individuals, and I can't imagine what this must have been like for Noah and his family. Imagine they've just been for 40 days and 40 nights living in this ark under torrential rain. I mean, the entire topography of the land was shifting below them. Waves abounding, massive tsunamis crashing all around them, and all of a sudden, everything goes quiet. You know that eerie quietness after the wreckage of a storm. 
I wonder if the animals quieted down even just for a moment. Moses writes, and here he gives great care to record the exact calendar days. It's fascinating. At this point, the earth had already been flooded for 150 days. That's five months. And while the storm is over, you can imagine that the wreckage from the storm, it's still real. It's still raw. And I think we forget this when we read this story. When he got in the boat, the world was filled and teeming with life. But it was filled and teeming with sin and wickedness. It's almost like an apocalypse movie. You ever watch those, you know, zombie apocalypse movies? Of course not. You're Christians. You wouldn't do that. (laughs) You know, where a virus has come and, 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 and wiped out all of humanity. Listen, in this picture, in this apocalypse, the virus is sin. And God rains down judgment, wiping out all of humanity. And just like in those apocalypse adventure movies, there's one family that remains. But instead of being in a bunker under the ground, they're in a boat floating on the waters. And through this one family, God is going to start all over again. Rebuild human society and culture and and human existence as we know it. I mean, the fate of human existence is literally upon Noah's shoulders. Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. It's all placed upon them, except this isn't some fantasy movie. This really happened. You know, when we think of storms, and I I think obviously this storm is pointing us towards a, a future judgment. We see the New Testament authors picking up on that reality. I think we can acknowledge that sometimes storms, metaphorically speaking, come because of sin. And, and not just metaphorically, I think actually we see this throughout scriptures, not only this storm, but others. Listen to what Jeremiah twenty-three nineteen says. It says, behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest, it will burst upon the head of the wicked. Or, or think about Jonah. Jonah, who, who was sent as a prophet to Nineveh, and who instead he, he turned and he fled, and he gets on a, a boat to go to Tarshish, and what does God do? He sends a storm, begins to pummel this, this ship that's filled with pagan idol worshipers, but the problem on the ship is Jonah and his rebellion, and so what does he say? Throw me overboard, and the storm will stop. What do they do? They throw him overboard, and everything goes quiet. Storms can be terrifying and frightening. They can do incalculable damage. Just think about the footage you saw from the last hurricane or mudslide or tsunami or earthquake. And what we have here is so far beyond anything we've ever seen on the news. A storm can destroy, and a storm can utterly and totally decreate, but they can remind us, listen, of where we must find strength and security. In fact, if you live in a, in a place, a part of the world that is inclined uh, to suffer storms like earthquakes or hurricanes, guess what one of the first things you do uh, when you buy a house? You make sure that thing's stable. You make sure that thing can withstand whatever kind of storm may be coming your way. You get prepared. You get secure. You strengthen your home. And you strengthen your resolve. 
For Noah and his family, this, this realization must have been so vivid and so powerful. I mean, think about this for a moment. Not only had they seen the power of the storm, they had made it safely through. God protected them. God carried them on the waves and across the water. God held them fast. God saved them. And I I think of what Isaiah 25 verse 4 says, For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. And as the winds of God blow across the waters, the waters begin to reside, they begin to abate, and the earth begins to come forth. Notice the language here in verse 4, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. This word rest is actually an incredibly important word. The root of this word is going to be used multiple times in this event, and it's actually giving a nod all the way back to the end of chapter 5. Do you remember what happens when Noah is born in chapter 5, verse 29? They called his name, Lamech his father, here's what it says, called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's very name was a reminder that God intended to give humanity rest. Listen, rest from the the storm, yes, but rest from the curse of sin that brought about the storm. Now, what we see is that God is the one who will bring rest, yes, through Noah, but he will do so in a kind of renewed creation. I think storms represent, again, metaphorically, a kind of death that can often lead to a kind of rebirth or life. That's what we see in this account with Noah. Sometimes it's the storm that actually helps us to see our need for true rest, Storms remind us of the the pain of sin. Storms remind us of the struggles of life in this world, the, the need for help outside of ourselves, the need for salvation, the promise of renewal and of cleansing. I don't know about you, but I love the smell after it's rained. You know that, like, especially in the spring, where we just that earthiness. There's something refreshing, there's something cleansing, there's something renewing that's, that's just taken place, but sometimes, listen, the storm has to wreak havoc before you can experience the renewal. A storm will so often be God's means of strengthening your faith and your security in Him. Again, if you can just allow that storm picture to, to be a bit of a metaphor for the trials of life. The scriptures say so much about trials in this life. Trials of various kinds, James says. Uh, Trials come in various intensities, in various forms. They come for various seasons and lengths of time. And, And what are we called to do when we face trials? We're supposed to count it all joy. Why? Because it's testing our faith. It's strengthening our faith. 
You see, a storm will test where you have found security and where you're finding your strength, right? What's the anchor for your soul? What is it that you are inclined to run to when you are facing a storm? What gives you peace? What gives you rest? I can't help but think, when we think of storms, by the way, do you realize how often the New Testament picks up this picture of storms? Even in terms of future judgment, you know, think of, of the, the, the two men, one who builds his house on a sand and one who builds his house on the rock, and you know, then the rains fall, the wind blows, and great is the fall of the one who builds his house upon the sand. Uh, even better, even better, one of the greatest pictures of all the Bible is Jesus in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 8, he's out there on the Sea of Galilee, and what happens? A massive storm comes. Now listen, it's helpful to understand that the men who are rowing the boat are fishermen. These aren't rookies, okay? They're not amateurs when it comes to figuring out storms, but here they are, they're utterly terrified, and here's what happens, okay? It says, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he, Jesus, was asleep. And they went and they woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then, this is amazing, then he rose, it says, and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? I'll tell you what kind of man it is. It's the man Christ Jesus who is Lord of the storm because he is Lord of all. And there they are here now sitting on Mount Ararat somewhere in Armenia is where people guess. Don't go looking for the ark. I don't think you're going to find it. But they're waiting in the ark for two more months. This is crazy. But listen, I just, just hear that for a second. The storm's over. They're waiting in the ark for two more months. Imagine the chaos of that ark. And I just want to remind you, listen, sometimes storms last a whole lot longer than we want them to. And sometimes the effects of storms linger longer than we anticipate. Sometimes the wreckage will last all the way until Jesus comes again. Sometimes it feels like we're waiting in the midst of a storm or maybe even after a storm or we're just shaking our head wondering when everything is going to go back to normal. We, we might be inclined to think that this is going to last for eternity, that God has forgotten us, that we are forsaken, that there's no dry land in sight. But listen, there is. There's dry land. We need to be reminded that listen, God is often doing his deepest work in our darkest moments. God is often doing his greatest strengthening in our greatest suffering. I just, I can't help but think, listen, of the disciples. For three days they waited while Jesus lay in a tomb. Three days that must have felt like an eternity, but the suffering and the waiting were bringing forth renewing to their souls. 
Do not give up hope if you find yourself in a storm. The storm was God's means of recreating and renewing to cleanse the world of sin. And and here's what one author says, Kenneth Matthews, a commentator, says the emerging earth would once again support life as it had at the beginning. With each new stage of its drawing, the heart of the captive inmates could leap with the hope that their deliverance was nearing. Storms like fire have a way of refining and renewing, washing away from our lives everything that is unnecessary, unhelpful, and ungodly in order, listen, this is the important part, in order to prepare us for something new and better. And and the way out of a storm is through the storm with the one who is your strength and who is your security. So what do I do if I find myself in a storm, here's, here's a few things you can consider today. Return to him, okay? Or, or maybe for some of you, you find yourself in a storm and you're not a part of God's family and the answer for you is not to return but to turn for the first time to him. And that means repent. Fall on your knees, repent of your sins, trust in him. And then secondly, rest in him. If you're in a storm, listen, one of the best things you can do is, yes, return to him, but rest in him, genuine rest. I mean, run into his presence, stay in his word. I mean, just listen to the voice of the psalmist over and over as they wrestle through the storms of life and find a refuge for your soul in the presence of your God. Find rest in him. Don't don't run to alcohol, don't run to pornography, don't run to anger and bitterness and resentment, don't run to isolation, run to him and rest there. It'll be so much better and so much sweeter than anything the world has to offer. Here's one other thing you can do is be renewed by him. Just keep drawing near to him every day. Draw near and he will draw near to you. If I could say it like this, remember the God who remembers you. Secondly, because God remembers, he will renew life and liberty by his spirit. In verse 6 through 14, listen to what it says. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. But he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Following the first appearance of land, the drying of the earth continues now, taking, listen, five more months. Noah continues to wait, and here we see his great patience and his great trust in the Lord. 
After 40 more days, Noah sends out a raven that does not return. Now, I think there's an illusion here. The number 40 is incredibly important when it comes to the testing of God's people. You can think of the period of Israel's captivity in the wilderness, the 40 years that were a result of the 40 days the spies were in the land of Canaan and they refused to obey God. Think of Jesus who was 40 days in the wilderness being tested by Satan. But why, why does he send out this raven? So what he does, the first bird he chooses is, is a raven. It's really interesting. And he switches gears pretty quickly to a dove, but I think we just can pause and just say, well, why is he sending out a raven? I, I think um, there's a lot of answers given to this. Here's what I think is happening here. I think the raven is clearly identified in the scriptures, in the law in particular, as an unclean bird. So therefore, it was both expendable since it was good for neither food nor sacrifice. I, I kind of like to think it was because the squawking was driving Noah crazy, and he's like, listen, God, it's no big deal if this one doesn't come back, okay? But in some ways in the scripture, this unclean bird is actually a symbol of death. Listen to what Isaiah 34, 11 says. It says, but the hawk and the por- this is in terms of the judgment of the nation of Israel and what's going to happen to the land. It says this, but the hawk and the porcupine pine shall possess it and the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and plumb the line of emptiness. In other words, the, the presence of a raisin, raven, raisins maybe, I don't know, but raven was a sign of God's judgment upon the earth. In other words, the raven goes out and it doesn't come back, meaning that the earth is still kind of underneath that judgment. It's still not ready yet for you to go out and experience life. Again, commentator Kenneth Matthews, he says this, that um, its departure in some ways is a symbol of death. He says its departure from the ark signified that the impurities of the past had been removed and the creation of the new world has, was, or had a fresh start, that this was about to take place. So this picture of death that comes before life, I think it's also helpful to kind of make note of this. The raven was a scavenger. And I think the reason it doesn't come back is because it's living off of the dead carcasses that are still floating all over the world. So the, the raven doesn't come back, and so what does he do? He, he sent out a dove on three separate journeys, waiting seven days between each of the journeys for a total of 54 days. As the dove returned once, it returned again with an olive leaf, and then it did not return. So why a dove? Why, why this bird instead? Well, I think this bird conveys the opposite meaning to the raven. It was commonly found in the sacrificial law, for example, example, for rites of purification. It was an acceptable uh, animal for the burnt offering and the sin offering among the poor. Uh, the term dove was often used as a term of endearment. Think uh, the Song of Solomon where he says in chapter 2 verse 14, oh my dove to the woman he is wooing. Um, he, he calls her this dove, this beautiful creature. You see that's the point. Um, men, I would suggest you do not compare your wife to a raven. 
Stick with dove. You see, a dove was considered a clean animal. It was a symbol of peace and a symbol of purity. And I want you to notice, by the way, in this passage, the emphasis on seven days. Don't miss that. This is such an important number in the creation narrative all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, reflecting the wholeness and purity of God. And add to that that it comes back, this, this dove does, on the second journey with an olive leaf or an olive branch. This is confirmation that the earth was bringing forth life. God had renewed it to the point where life could now continue to exist and thrive. But listen, why mention what kind of leaf is brought back? For sure, all of trees are known to be robust and strong trees, and certainly it's a reminder that there were some things that were able to continue to live and exist even under the waters of the flood in terms of, of biological life. But, but listen, I think it's more than that. Many scholars have noted that early readers would have likely made a connection here to the tabernacle and the temple. They would have, in their minds, been reading this and thinking, olive leaf, well, olive oil is incredibly important in the life of our worship. I mean, and think about this, okay? Worship in the tabernacle, the presence of God in the tabernacle and the temple was the symbol of life for humanity. In other words, to live is to be in the presence of God. And and there are a multitude of symbols within the tabernacle and temple itself that tried to demonstrate this idea of life and and fruitfulness. For example, the vegetation that was carved on the inside of the the temple or the, the tabernacle, depictions of fruit or palm trees, pomegranates or gourds. Why? This is a picture of the garden. It's a picture of life. It's a picture of life that's found in the presence of God. And listen, in the middle of the tabernacle was the menorah that was fueled by olive oil. The menorah symbolizing the tree of life. The presence of God. And olive oil was was added to the mixture of perfumed oil that was used to anoint the tabernacle furnishings. I think they would have made these connections in their minds. One commentator says this, this is a bit of a longer quote, so so stick with me here. This is so helpful. He says, by this sign, Noah knew that the waters had receded. This emblem of life and prosperity gave this second Adam reassurance of continued life and safety. Both anointing oil and dove had symbolic value in Israel for the empowering presence of the Spirit especially as later uh, biblical authors would develop, especially the ministry of the messianic figure. Jesus of Nazareth took up that ministry, Luke 4.18 and Acts 10.38 remind us, and at his public baptism, think about this, as Jesus emerges out of the water, all four Gospels note that the Spirit came upon him in the form of a descending what? Dove. After yet another seven days, the bird is released a third time, and at last the dove does not return. And by not returning, it proclaims this freedom to those who are still shut up in the ark. 
You see, through God's renewing, he is bringing life and freedom, and all of this is being done in the Spirit. We've already seen the the Spirit, the wind that's been blowing over the earth, and I think we're getting a glimpse here, listen, of the ministry of God's Spirit. His ministry to bring life. I think, think of the connections in John chapter 3 when Jesus is speaking to, to Nicodemus and telling him that, that in order to be saved, you must be born again. But that being born again is by a movement of the Spirit. And he compares the Spirit to a wind that blows wherever it will. Or the ministry of freedom that's produced by the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians three seventeen, Paul says this. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from sin, which brings death. Freedom from judgment, because Christ himself has taken judgment in our place. Freedom to truly live, released from the prison of sin unto a life with God. Remember at Pentecost? Where the believers are all gathered together, they're waiting as Jesus had commanded them and waiting for the Spirit. And then it says this, that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them from heaven, you know what it says? With the sound like a mighty rushing wind. You know, don't miss this connection. He's driving you back to the Spirit's work at creation. Don't you see that in the creation of the church of Jesus Christ, we have a parallel with God's creation of all things. The Spirit of God comes like a rushing wind, and it brings life to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, empowering them, filling them, giving liberty in Him. Listen, if you're in Christ today, you are a part of the first fruits of the new creation. And I find it interesting, by the way, that the church had to wait just like Noah had to wait. 50 days for them, 40 days after the resurrection, 10 more days after the ascension. And I just let me say this again the waiting is intended to increase the trusting, which is intended to lead to renewing. Waiting leads to trusting. Trusting leads to renewing. Waiting produces patience, steadfastness. When, when I was a, a kid, kind of turning into those teenage years, my parents gave me a, a study Bible. And uh, it was following my baptism. And inside of the Bible, they wrote a verse that they thought would apply to me. I was big into running. I was big into athletics. And they chose a verse that they didn't know would be so meaningful to me throughout my own life, especially as I had to navigate the storms of life like everybody else. They wrote in my Bible, Isaiah 40, chapter 30, verse 31. Here's what it says. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And as we look at Noah here, I just want you to see this, that waiting on the Lord is not passive. It's not this let go and let God approach to the Christian life that just doesn't hold any water, biblically speaking, no pun intended. 
trusting the Lord is, is not just this passive approach to living the Christian life. Listen, we cannot force renewal in our own lives, but we can keep trusting and pursuing the God who provides it. So how do we do that? How do we do that in our own lives? Here's how we do that. Let me just, I, I kind of, here, here's a kind of a, a, a bit of a rhyme that maybe will help this stick into your mind. Um, or you'll just find it cheesy and whatever, it's fine. Okay, here it is. You want to know how, how to pursue the God who brings revival and renewal to your soul? Listen, watch and pray, trust and obey, cling to Jesus, our hope and stay. Okay? You watch and pray. Prayer is, is that picture of dependence upon the Lord. That's the activity. I'm going to seek you, God. I'm going to call out to you, God. I'm going to demonstrate my trust in you, God, by, by, by laying everything at your feet, by asking you to move in power, by asking you to meet me, by asking you to train, change me and transform me, by asking you to help me. When I, I, I nothing else will, God, I will come to you by asking God to help in the midst of temptation, listen, to flee the storm or to turn to other things in the storm. We watch and we pray and then we trust and obey. We do what we know God has commanded us to do. We believe that God's way will always be right, that, that taking a shortcut or trying to, to kind of do things my own way is not going to prove beneficial. It will not bring joy. It will not bring satisfaction. It will only do greater damage. And then here's the key here. We cling to Jesus, our hope and stay. In the midst of the storm, he's the one we trust. He's the one we hold on to. He will the one, he's the one who will bring us safety and security, who will bring us life and liberty. We look to Jesus, the one who went through the waters and the spirit like a dove landed upon him, our anointed Messiah, listen, who is our olive tree, the vine in whom we must abide. Because God remembers he will renew life and liberty by his spirit who lives in us. Finally, because God remembers he will renew purpose and promise for his servants. In verse 15, the story shifts a little bit. This is the first time we hear God speak since he tells Noah to get into the ark. It's been a year. It says, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and creeping things that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease." The initial portion here kind of slows down. There's this, this kind of 
epic repetition that Moses uses. It's like a slow motion reel in a movie. Think like chariots of fire. I won't sing the song, you know, but you know what I'm talking about. Everything slows down. And just notice that, that, that it's in response. God calls forth. It's kind of like God, like Jesus calling forth to Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus, come out. And out walks Lazarus. It's kind of like at the beginning of Genesis when God speaks and all creation obeys, coming forth into existence. We see Noah presented here like another Adam. We see him as he steps out of the ark onto this mountaintop, looking out at this new world. This renewed earth that has been washed and cleansed. And again, it's a kind of rebirth, a fresh start, a new beginning. Man, I love that we serve a God of fresh starts and new beginnings, don't you? It's a picture of grace. And we hear the echoes of Genesis 1, the creation event here with the animals. Go, be fruitful, and multiply. Look, by the way, at chapter 9, verse 1. We'll look at this more next week. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's a recommissioning. God is getting them back to their creation purpose, their creation mandate. God's not finished with us yet. God renews his purpose to fill the earth with life and to use humanity to accomplish his promised plan of redemption. We're told that as soon as he left the ark, look look at his response. What is the first thing he does? Noah built an altar. First time in the Bible the word altar is used. We'll see this, that those who walk with God often are found building altars. Abraham is going to do the same thing. And what does he do? He, he takes some of all the clean animals and all the, the clean birds, and he, he sacrifices this burnt offering on this altar to the Lord. This offering was both a thank offering for the deliverance of Noah and his family, but it was a sin offering by which Noah confessed his need of atonement for his sins and the sins of his family. James Montgomery Boyce says that if life was to begin anew, it was to begin with a proper and thankful approach to God, at least so far as Noah had anything to do with it. And it's as if here, you know, it's as if we're being told that the new creation could only come forth on the back of sacrifice. A sacrifice that demonstrated that God's anger and wrath had been propitiated, that the penalty had been paid. He had been assuaged in his his anger and wrath, at least for a, a time. Listen, you cannot have God renewed purpose apart from sacrifice. Do you realize that? You cannot have a God renewed new creation purpose in your life apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All new life flows from sacrifice. Only Jesus can wash you and cleanse you and renew you. 
That's why if you're in Christ today, you are a new creation. You actually have a new purpose, and that purpose requires regular renewal, regular remembrance. That's why God would institute a sacrificial system for the nation of Israel. You will always have to remember that in order for you to have life and to have access to my presence, sacrifice is necessary. Sins must be dealt with. Every Passover feast, every festival they celebrated, all of this was for this regular remembrance of the grace of God. That's why we as a church celebrate the Lord's Supper. Paul tells us to do this in remembrance of him. We desperately need regular gospel renewal to remind us of of why we live right now, why we're alive, how we live, and for whom we live. The one who loved us and gave his life for us. The picture here of the sacrifice, by the way, is this, this sacrifice, uh, it's, a, it's a complete offering. It, the, the offering would have been utterly incinerated, demonstrating total commitment and devotion of all of Noah's life. It's as if he's coming to God and saying, God, I'm alive only because of you, and in response, I'm giving all of myself to you. And it reminds us that the purpose of humanity, listen, is worship. Sacrifice in the Old Testament was a, was a form of worship to God. And here we see in the scriptures, listen again, we are created to worship. And worship is always the proper response to redemption. We see here that Noah is celebrating the forgiveness of sin All I am and all I have is yours. And God renews here his promise to Abraham, or excuse me, to Noah. And instead, here's what he says, instead of destruction, the earth will be blessed with regular and predictable environmental patterns that are undergirded by the sovereign hand of God. Did you catch that? I mean, there's all this, this fear and worry that somehow, listen, all this climate, climate change nonsense about going to destroy the earth. It's not going to destroy the earth. I'm not saying we shouldn't care for the environment. But listen, I promise you, that's not what's going to destroy the earth. No nuclear war, no population boom is going to destroy the earth. That's going to happen when Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, returns upon a cloud to judge the living and the dead. And what God actually promises is something so profound. He says, actually, all things are going to continue to go on for the existence of this world, this age. The survivors of the the flood had known the storm and the wind as their greatest adversaries, and they had witnessed the power. But this here, this promise, the Lord restored their confidence, and he subdued the world. He subjected it to the divine promise where they could once again thrive. I want you to see that this condition of the earth is only temporal. Temporal. Verse 22 says, as long as the earth endures. But you know something? God's promise, his promises never to do something or never to let something happen are actually among the most precious promises in all the Bible. 
You know, Jesus uses the word never more than any other person in all of Scripture. If you were just to read through the Gospel of John, let me give you a sampling of this, Christian. Just cling to these promises this afternoon. Listen to what Jesus says. He said, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst again. He said, he who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. He said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. My sheep, he says, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Whoever lives and believes in me, Jesus says, will never die. These promises, listen, they cover the whole spiritual life of the believer from the initial faith act in Christ to eternal security and victory over death. And right here in the case of Genesis 8, verse 20 and 22 specifically, listen, they cover a regular sequence of days and seasons as long as the earth lasts. But listen, this shows us a permanency for the world, but it also infers that the present heavens and earth will someday cease. We cannot forget this. As one author said, ours is not a world without end. And as Peter says, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. So listen, even when this world fades away, when the heavens are rolled up like a scroll, and when the stars fall from the sky, and the earth is purged with fire, the new heavens and the new earth, the full and final picture of all that God will create, it awaits those who are in Christ. Based on this promise, what is our purpose? Here it is, listen, to offer our lives as a living sacrifice of spiritual worship. To go unto all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you, and listen to the words of Jesus, and I am with you to the end of the age. That end of the age is coming. And when it does, listen, God will remember his people. Are you one of his people? If not, turn to him today. Be renewed by the power of the gospel. Be one of those that he will remember. And as God himself says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He never has, never wants, and he never will. Father, we thank you and we praise you. And God, like Noah, we want to offer sacrifices to you that are are pleasing aroma. Sacrifices that, that come from hearts that are filled with thankfulness and praise to you, our great God, our Redeemer the one who has rescued us from sin's power and rescued us from sin's penalty and who will one day in the new heavens and new earth rescue us from sin's presence once and for all. Thank you, God, that you are faithful to your promise, that you love your people, that you remember us. You have committed yourself to us in Christ Jesus. We are a part of of the new covenant by the shedding of his blood. We pray, Father, that our response would be to sing of your praises both now and for all eternity. 
Receive our praise now, we pray, as your people whom you remember. We remember you now and offer you the worship that is due your name alone. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.